a podcast by Vision Point Marketing. Welcome to Rock and Roll, a podcast on strategic marketing and enrollment management in higher education. You'll learn enrollment marketing and management tips from higher ed experts and marketing insiders so that you can boost your institution's enrollment. I'm Dana Cruikshank, Vice President of Market Strategy at Vision Point Marketing. On today's episode, you'll hear from Shane Adams, Chief Marketing Officer at Graceland University, as we discuss his career and his learnings in the higher education sector. Well, listen, I really appreciate you uh, joining us here today. This is, uh, this is a fun one, um, fun fun yeah. kind of topic. Yeah. So, um, you know, Shane, I know we've worked, uh, I know you've worked with Vision Point now for yeah, just about, what, six months now? Six roughly, months. I think six months. Yeah. It's been about okay. that. I, I feel like time flies. I remember just before the Thanksgiving holiday, we had some initial conversations about brand. We got to talk about uh, Donald Miller's uh, uh, brand story concept and, and some other uh, fantastic uh, conversations there, but yeah, one of the things that struck me when I first, uh, met you when we first, uh, connected was just your background, uh, working in some really exciting, uh, some really interesting companies. Uh, stop me when I, when I, if I miss one here. So you've done marketing for Chipotle, you've done marketing for, uh, AMC. Hope you got some stock on that one these past few, uh, past years it were, but, uh, um, what, what am I missing in your, uh, uh, through the marketing world? So, uh, you know, like I, I, my first job that I started with was really like a start, this like startup company. It was my first experience with like enterprise software. And it was it, the company when I started, it was like 18 people. And then when I left, it was 300. So what was cool about that was as that company grew, I got to do all of the marketing things because I started as a writer. I was, I graduated with like an English degree. And then I, I was like, well, there's a lot of cool stuff to do in marketing and being now in higher ed marketing, I'm going to market my university. I, I learned how to learn because I went to a liberal arts university, you know, from that, I was able to like acquire these skills, right? Like I acquired the skills of graphic design and I acquired the skills of coding and, you know, really, I think dialed into digital marketing as really the thing that I loved more than anything. And that was what took me kind of, I spent some time at like a, a little small financial services company, but then I worked for Cerner, which is a big healthcare company here in Kansas city. Then I went to work for AMC, went from AMC to Chipotle. And, and I wish I had some AMC stock. I do not. I wish I had, I honestly wish I still had my Chipotle stock. Their, their stock has been going off too. Um, but yeah, I, I got to do really cool stuff for both of those companies. Uh, cool, but some people might not find what I did at, at Chipotle cool. I thought it was fun. Like at Chipotle, I was in charge of customer service on social. I was answering people's questions. Okay, I gotta be honest with you, that does not sound like fun to me, but I'm glad it was for right. you. Tell, tell, us, tell us what was fun about that. The reason it was fun was because Chipotle was like very like playful with its brand. What was so fun about it was I was a part of this brand that was like beloved. I, I've never been a part of a brand that's been so beloved. It, it was striking how in love to the point where that that extended to the people that ran the brand. And because Chipotle had a very specific approach to social where everything they put out, they signed. And that even went to their organic stuff that they were doing before, but that has changed over the last several years, but they still do it to this day where when they're doing customer service, like if I was responding to a tweet, I would sign it. Shane, I remember talking to the team there about that 
early on and they shared with me like why they do that. The reason was we became so, we, we have become so desensitized to yelling at faceless corporations that we forget that there's human beings who have to answer your mad tweets. I was proud of the work that we did at Chipotle. I thought that, you know, the, the team that I joined ultimately was, was made up of some, some of the best thinkers in the world. And one of the coolest things was like my boss at Chipotle was one of the original store managers for the original Chipotle. And so he had this like really cool perspective, but he was super chill and, and allowed me the ability to kind of build my, my own personal tone within the Chipotle tone, which was fun. And what was so weird about it was like, I had, I had people who were finding my own personal social tracking me down and you're the Shane from Chipotle, right? And like, <laughs> oh, it's so cool. You have the best job in the world, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, imagine what it's like when you have to get a tweet that is somebody's toilet, you know, like, and they're yeah. telling you that, that it's your fault, you know, I mean, like that was, and that's the, that sentiment change that happened almost overnight. Cause before it was like, we could do no wrong. That was the interesting thing that happened was despite the fact that Chipotle was kind of seen as one of the gold standards for social, man, when you get punched in the, you, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That was their punch in the face. Like that sure. was nobody could predict what was going to happen to them uh, in that time. And yet we were still, we, uh, we were personally answering 2000 plus posts every single day until the day that we closed. I don't know if you guys remember this, but we closed all of our stores for, for like a, an afternoon. We had 20,000 posts that day. We had a, a order of magnitude more. It was pretty cool. You're talking about this, this corporation that shut down their entire operation for a day. We're talking about millions of dollars of revenue in one day that they're willing to step away from because they felt like it was important enough for them to make sure that everybody understood not only what they were doing on the food safety front, but what they being the associates in the uh, organization should be doing too. It was really cool for an organization that big to, to turn as quickly as they did. It was, it was one of the most remarkable things I've seen in my career. It was incredible. They fundamentally rewrote their entire supply chain within three months. It was nuts. Okay. While we're, while we're talking stocks too, I do regret not, uh, not getting in when they were at the nadir of that crisis. It's so funny. Cause I was only there for about a year and a half, but I did a lot in that year and a half. It was a lot of fun, but I, I had gotten some stock options, but I got them at the top. I got them like when they were at the top and then you know, it just yep. went in the tank. Just a couple of things that come out that jump out to me uh, for our higher ed listeners out here. First of all, if you are a social media, organic social media manager in higher education, uh, hats off to you. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure you, people are God tweeting bless. you things, perhaps even way worse than toilets uh, as it were, uh, all the way around. Mm -hmm. So God bless there. But, um, that really surprised me when you mentioned that, you know, not doing bots, uh, making those replies in person, but also so what you talked about, about personalizing the tone of the response to letting mm -hmm. you, you're basically letting people on the front lines of the brand freelance a little bit, right? Like to, to be able to take their own little interpretation, their own spin to the, to the point where people recognized you elsewhere. One of the things that just kind of jumps out at me when I hear that is, you know, that is where authenticity comes from. And I think we've all read the, uh, you know, consultancy reports tell us that the millennials wanted brands that aligned with their values. Gen Z really wants authenticity. 
really wants mm-hmm. that area that that feels real. Yeah, it's interesting how that's just just those those really simplified ways of of what it takes to personalize you know, your outreach. And in social such an interesting space. I've worked in social since the beginning. The work that I did at AMC, we were standing up a business social brand. If you've been around marketing long enough, you might remember when AMC did like the not cool cookie and they kind of burned Oreo. That was me. I did that. And I and I wrote a whole blog post that actually got linked in Adweek. You have to put responsibility and trust on your frontline people. You have to make sure that that social person who's out there doing community management or what have you has the ability and agility to pivot quick because social is changing all the time. You have to be very online, right? You have to know what's happening in the zeitgeist. You have to see the trends and be able to respond quickly. Nathan Allen back, what he did at Stakem was insane. But it was awesome. It was like really, really clever. And and Stakem like built their brand around what he was doing on social because he was so plugged into like what people could, like how he could engage. And what we were doing at, at, at AMC though, was we were trying to build affinity for the brand through social, right? So I worked with a really smart guy there, uh, Justin Gardner. He was, he was a very online person. He came to me and he was like, we're going to, pivot away from, cause we had, we had had this like blog strategy and he's like, we're going to pivot away from blogs entirely. And we're going to start a YouTube channel. It was probably 2012. And I was like, okay. And he's like, no, wait till you see what we're going to do. It's going to be amazing. We're going to host a, a sports center style show every day about movies. And we had found the right people to do that show to the point where we went from about 2000 followers on YouTube to 250,000 in like 18 months. And the reason we did it was because we wanted to be the place where people believed that we loved the movies. We wanted nerds like us to want to come to our theaters. And and so as, as soon as we could change market share, we were making significant efforts to improve our position in the marketplace. And the show that we produced was incredible. We were going to Comic-Con and we were having live shows from Comic-Con. We were getting invited to every red carpet. I mean, now granted, this was partially because we hired really awesome people. Uh, on production, talent, really every, Both. every- In a lot of ways, it was because our key, our, our main guy, his name is John Campia. In fact, he's still huge on YouTube. He knew all of the people because he had started one of the very first movie blogs that existed. And now he's got the John Campia show on, on YouTube and it's, I mean, he's crushing it still to this day. And that was, that was what we did. And we had hours and hours of content. When I say that we produced a show every single day, I mean, it was a show. I'm not talking about five days a week. I'm talking about seven. They would do mailbag shows on the weekend. That's a passion project at that point, huh? It was awesome. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. So being good at social isn't just about being a good writer or a photographer or a videographer or anything like that. It's also about being able to see culture and go, I can find my way into that. Part of that is making sure that you can be, if you overthink it, then you're going to miss the moment. Uh, And I think we've all seen those misses. You know what I mean? There's like coming out two, three weeks after the joke is done, after it's been played out. I feel like, I hate to say it, but I feel like higher ed does that quite a bit. Uh, one other thing too, I wonder if you ever want to find a fantastic organic social brand that's done within the federal government, this is really obscure, but it's incredible, is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Portland District. Look them up okay. on Facebook. 
so good. And just what you're saying about being able to do things like, because, you know, they do like dams and levees and, you know, whatever the, whatever the zeitgeist is that day, whatever the, the meme that's circulating, they're on it. And it's, it's hilarious. Uh, it's shocking, shocking that a federal agency would be able to do that. So yeah, we but, did what we did one for the, the James Webb telescope. So our, our mascot's name is Sting. The, the costume, you know, those costumes are so expensive, right? Yes. But like we have, we have one of the costumes available to us if we ever want to do photo shoots or anything. Worth like that. paying the money for though. Worth paying totally. the money for it. You get a totally cheap worth- one, man. Those things are just creepy. Yeah. So, so back on like Halloween, one of my team members had dressed up as an astronaut. And so we were like, it'd be funny if we took the sting, at least the sting head, which is gigantic. And we just put it on people's costumes. And so we did a carousel where stings like flying through space <laughs> it's just it made me laugh it i thought it was really really funny and it was i think our coffee caption was something like the truth is out there or something but we're not an astronomy school but we had something that was at least a little relevant to something that everybody was talking about at, on social at the time so why do you think there's such a hesitancy to let brands to get a little looser with brands and not just in organic social but also in kind of just content creation other other areas of marketing. I think it has a lot to do with the concern or the feeling that, that most institutions have around, well, we got to appear academic, right? And, and anything that we do that could sully that academic image, we need to steer clear from. I disagree with that wholeheartedly, but I, I do understand it because the thing I've learned about higher education is it's full of academics. I encounter lots of folks who are really, really bright and have spent time in corporate America and stuff like that. But you spend enough time in academia, there's a importance, like a, an, an air that you put on what you do that it makes you, it, I don't want to say it's haughtiness. I think, yeah. I think institutions as a whole, they're worried that if they make some sort of jokey post, that that is going to, ruin their 125 year reputation. And I'm like, then you need to go take some new marketing classes. And that, that's, that's how you recommend something to an academic, right? Is you just tell them to go take classes, <laughs> read a book, right? right? Read a book, read a book. You know, it's interesting to say that too, because if we look at where, and, and talk about the zeitgeist, if we look at, uh, really just in the past two, three years, what the, what the research is telling us about perceptions of higher education of profound skepticism of its value, profound skepticism Mm -hmm. of, you know, really just like just outright antagonism towards it from a lot of our, a lot of really important audiences out there, especially if we're trying to recruit prospective students, especially in certain parts of the country and from certain regions uh, within a state as well. So to me, like anything we can do to make our brands more accessible, I I won't say anything, but, uh, you know, being able to to make our brands just a little more accessible uh, really seems like, seems like it's worth the risk. I totally agree. There's institutional social, and then there's the social people, right? And I think the social people would be much more willing to push if they felt like they had that freedom, right? And so that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is the the idea that that you enable and empower the people that are on those front lines to, to, to go and do things. If you give them clear goals and you give them like general guidelines, they're not going to ruin your brand. Social is such a blank like you can recover like it used to be that you thought that you could ruin your reputation with with a single tweet i i may be wrong but i don't know that it's really true for 
long-term institutions. I think people are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt when you make mistakes. You know, our, our institution has been focused a lot on the growth mindset this last couple of years. That's uh, Carol Dweck who wrote that book. And her whole kind of theory is, you know, the growth mindset is, it, it says like failure is not the worst thing in the world, right? It is a part of growth. If you're unwilling to fail, then you're unwilling to grow. I think that higher education institutions are in a very, there's, there's cycles, right? And so change is long and in, in corporate that ain't true. Overnight change happens in corporate. And I think what's happening is as the world has sped up, especially in the last two years, it had left higher ed out of it to some extent. And now people are finally expecting higher education to be a little bit more agile. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just hard. You know, it's interesting just in our time working with Graceland, it seems like it seems like Graceland has been really ahead of that curve. I mean, I know you guys have been involved in uh, SkillPath, for example, for over 20 years, uh, which is really an innovative way of, of looking at continuing education and other opportunities. But I'm curious, what does it take internally, even at an institution at Graceland that's not afraid to take some risks, what does it take internally to you know be able to be a little more adaptive, make those pivots and so forth? Trust. I don't know that there's anything more important than that. Trust is paramount when it comes to being able to move quickly. I have to feel the trust of the folks at the top, but I also have to feel like the folks trust me. I have to trust them to believe that I have the best interests of the institution at heart. One thing that I'll say about higher education is if higher education is gonna die, it's gonna die in committee. And I'm all for shared governance and I'm all for like shared decision-making, but somebody's gotta own big initiatives. That to me is one of the biggest places where, where higher education can improve is giving people the ability to own their stuff and to make enough decisions to, to, to move the ball forward significantly. Uh, a quick story about that. So when I was at AMC and before we were doing social, I was in charge of the website. We had had a pretty negative experience with a couple of agencies. And so me and a couple of the internal software developers, we said, hey, look, 30 to 40% of the time, our site was throwing errors. I can't imagine what the bounce rate was like there. It was awful. So what we said was, if you fire this agency that we have on retainer, and you give us those resources. We're going to bring in contractors to be developers. We're going to hire a UX agency, and then we're going to do it all internal and we'll do it in 18 months. We fundamentally rewrote the site. We built an entire set of web services that didn't even exist before. We built an e-commerce engine and we made our site responsive all in 18 months. And we came in under budget. What I told my bosses early on was I said, this is how this project's going to go. There are going to be 1000 decisions that have to be made between right now and the end of the project. You guys get to make eight. I'm going to make the rest. They knew that I knew my stuff. I think they were a little scared of me too, but like, but ultimately what I was telling them was I'm not going to let the big things go by and you're not going to have input, but if you have input on everything, it's going to slow us down. We'll never we'll never achieve our goal. What I told them was like, our site is going to be responsive. And what we're going to do is I'm going to go to the folks who literally wrote the books on responsive web design. When we started, our traffic was 67% 
desktop and 30% mobile. And by the time we finished that project 18 months later, those numbers had switched. And so the prediction to go towards responsive was huge because it enabled us to be well ahead of our competitors. That's my fun way of, of, of talking about like decision-making when it comes to large projects. I've taken that approach with the project that we've been working on with, with y'all. Um, and I would say, Shane, your level of putting your own neck on the line here is really a standout experience for me. The trust that it allows for us to have, it is as valuable as money and it is as irreplaceable as time. I appreciate you saying that, Dustin. I think there's one thing about that that I do think I have an advantage on. I don't know that there are a lot of people like me at institutions as small as Graceland. I'm not going to claim that to be 100% true, but most of the folks that I've encountered they go from higher ed to higher ed to higher ed. I went from software to healthcare, to entertainment, to QSR, to higher ed. Actually, I went to nonprofit and then I did higher ed. Almost four years later, I'm still learning about higher education. It's also, you have to be the kind of person who's really connected to mission. If there's one thing that higher ed does do really, really well, it's that. They bank on their staff and faculty members being connected to their mission. And that's a, a sales pitch in and of itself, right? Like to, to get the faculty and staff on board with it. And I think that's why you see so many institutions, especially like Graceland, where 60% of our staff are alumni. I mean, you guys know my entire team is. To your point, I don't think there's many schools the size of Graceland or larger, even with that level of commitment that Graceland seems to have. Of all the listening tours I've ever done, Graceland was the only school where the student attendance ratio was 100%. Every single student that was invited came. That is a tough group to get. I padded that with the best of the best, though, Dustin. Well, I sure. told you that. I, like, I, I legitimately was like, who are the students that I know will say yes and will show up? I ask you a quick question. It's funny. I look at LinkedIn right now and people reach out to me and they'll say, I'm in higher ed marketing right now. I just can't take it anymore. I got to get out. Who do you know? And I know folks who are marketing in a variety of sectors from uh, CPG to financial services who say, I got to get out of this rat race. I really want to do something meaningful. I want to get into higher ed. What would you say to those folks who are in higher ed now or thinking, you know what, I'm going to go over to the corporate side. I'm going to go over into healthcare, uh, so forth. What do you think will surprise them when they get over there? I think what, what will surprise them is the thing that has surprised me at every place that I've been, which is politics and infighting exist everywhere. Th there have been like very few instances where this has not been true. Everywhere is a land grab. Everywhere supervisors are like, what can I control? What can I control? And, they, and they're, they're, they're just grabbing as much power as possible. And that's, that, I hate that. But, but the truth is, is like everybody's in silos, right? The truth is, is those silos, those, they exist everywhere. The big thing that you would see as a big difference between higher education and corporate is in higher education, the silo exists, yet people might have commentary about how this silo over here is doing its job. In corporate, the silos exist. For the most part, people are like, do your job and I'm not going to bother you. And I think in higher education, I think we, we tend to be in people's business a little bit more. What I will say is you sure as heck won't get extended periods of time off. You're going to, I mean, I, I, one of the things that I know about higher education institutions is they have plenty of vacation. You aren't going to get that over on the corporate side. It, it, the grass is not all green. I will say that for sure. Well, I know we're, I know we're coming up on time, but um, did just want to 
just wanted to say thanks. Any any kind of final thoughts, parting thoughts on the kind of that merge between you know what corporate experience brings to the table uh, in the higher ed context and so forth. So the thing that I, the thing that I would say is if if you're if you're a corporate person who's who's looking to go into higher education, the thing I would say is bring that experience with you. Don't don't just trust that higher ed has it all figured out and they're going to do things their way. Push for innovation, push for, you know, a rethinking of processes because higher ed needs it. Academia does need to innovate and change and it does need to be more agile and it does need to be disrupted a little bit as long as it maintains its connection to mission. I love working in higher education. I can tell when I haven't spent enough time with students because I'll start to get a little grumpy. I know as soon as I go and spend time with students and listen to like their optimism and the ways in which they want to change the world, my countenance will change immediately because that's the reason I do the work without question the reason I do the work. And so I, what I would say to, to, to corporate folks, if they're, if they're thinking about going into higher education, if you can, make sure that you have something that you do something that will at least connect you to students in some way, because it'll make, it'll make the work a heck of a lot better. Granted, I, I, I have the advantage of working with some of the coolest students in the world and, and, a, and an extremely diverse, thoughtful, kind community of people who truly do want to change the world. And that's the kind of students that we recruit and that we, that we try to bring to Graceland. I'm, I'm real fortunate to, to, to be able to work with these amazing amazing students. I guess actually, you know, we could kind of end where we probably perhaps should have began. Give me the introduction of Grace about Graceland. Uh, what, sure. what, what the institution is, what makes it a little unique and actually there's a lot of things that make it unique, but uh, give us the spiel. Graceland is a 127 year old institution, liberal arts, faith backed, but not, I, 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 I almost even hesitate to say that because I would, I would consider Graceland as a, as a very, very welcoming and accepting community of all types of faiths, but it is, it is backed by a community of Christ and has been since the beginning, but it was set up as a non-sectarian university, which they really believed heavily in that meant you never had to go to chapel or anything like that it was always about learning we've been liberal arts since the beginning we were one of iowa's first junior colleges um, and we have a campus in the kansas city area as well that does uh, nursing and uh, our seminary is there uh, we have online programs I think the thing that we stand on more than anything is is this concept of community. Lamoni, uh, Iowa, which is where the main undergraduate campus is, is a very rural town. It, it sits kind of in the middle of America. What that forces you to do is you have to you, you're like you're like forced to build relationships with people. You're forced to be in each other's lives. You're forced to, to, to interact and to learn how to do conflict resolution and how to, to work together because that's what a small, a small town kind of requires of you. Graceland has systems built in to allow students to find their way. So since 1965, we've had a program called uh, our residence life program is built on what's called the house system. And the house system is kind of similar to like Hogwarts houses, but um, we thought of it first JK Rowling. So we'll be uh, asking for our royalties later. But each of, of the students, they're not sorted, but they but they basically are put onto a house and it's based on where they live in the residence halls. And those houses have sibling houses that they tend to do activities with during the year. You have built-in 
it, it, it's it's close to a Greek system, but it's not Greek in that there's no rush, there's no pledging, that, like nothing like that. The mission for our residence life system is you belong because you're here and for no other reason. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to pass any sort of test. Instead, you are assigned that because that's where you live. And so you are built in with, to this community and, and it's very intentional. Um, the, the residence life team is extremely intentional about the way that they form these houses. They try really hard to make sure that there is racial diversity and geographic diversity and even, uh, even academic diversity on each of the houses so that you're forced to interact with people who are unlike you. The, the Vision Point team has done a good job of synthesizing that into a really, a really great message of belonging and why belonging is important. Because when we belong to something, when we feel safe in that belonging, it gives us courage. It gives us the ability to determine who we are and, and not just determine who we are, but to be who we are, to be fully who we are. That's my favorite thing about Graceland without question. But we have, you know, 30 programs and still looking to grow as much as we can. We're certainly not busting at the seams, but we, we really love the work that we do. And, and we love the students that, that we graduate. The theme of our last year was, was the world needs more Graceland graduates. We had this physician who worked in a hospital on the East Coast. He had a program that he had started that was an internship program that he had five summer interns every single summer. And it was open nationally. And it was a very highly sought after internship, but every year he would reserve one spot for a Graceland student. It became a joke at this hospital and they would predict what week it was that the students would self-select the Graceland person as the leader. He's like, I, I don't mean to be weird about it, but it happened time and time again. And we're talking about students that were from every institution across the U.S. They would always select the Graceland student as the leader. That's the kind of students that we were creating. That's the kind of students that we really believe we can create. These really bold and kind leaders who want to change the world and make it a better place, but do it through inclusion. I'm sold. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to apply. Sounds good to me. I, I like it. Graceland um, is the school I've ever heard of that I was like, I'm actually, I'm upset I didn't go there. When I heard about that housing system and we asked the students too, we were like, was that a determining factor for you joining Graceland? And they were like, all across like yes like we loved that that was a big deal whether it was volleyball or you know whatever they they wanted to do it was like that was a hook that's like my favorite compliment i've gotten from a vendor over the last several years is that that statement dustin is is my favorite compliment that we have gotten you mentioned at the top of the hour that you were a liberal arts student and that you went to graceland what do you think are the advantages of being a liberal arts major in marketing that's my background as well i think there's a real advantage to it but curious nothing against the folks who majored in marketing of course but uh, no we'd love I, to hear your take on that marketing is a constantly changing environment I'm sure that there are people that you could be a writer literally forever if you wanted to be. But if you're in marketing, you got to be both a writer and you have to understand design and you have to understand humor and taste. And all of those things come from a liberal arts background because you're able to then really think critically about like, should I do this? The ethics and the, and, the, and the questioning on whether you should do things is something I wish more marketers had. And I think that ethics particularly is something that comes from 
liberal arts, if we need something more than anything right now, it's ethical marketers. That's amazing. You said a mouthful. I don't know that we could possibly get much better than that. So I'm actually just going to leave it right there. I think that's, uh, I think it's kind of perfect. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, sure thing. 